Thank you for joining us for Sermons on Demand from Friendship Grace Brethren Church. We provide these videos as a way to share the pulpit messages and teachings offered at Friendship Grace Brethren Church. If you find these videos a helpful resource, please drop us a note at info at friendshipgracebrethren.com. Now open your Bibles and get ready to dig into the Word of God. Reading this morning from the Proverbs. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves him who he loves as a father the son in whom he delights. I don't care about the Super Bowl. My bucks aren't in it. Okay, let's start over again. Discipline leads to perfection. We've made it to chapter 12 of the book of Hebrews and we completed chapter 11 last week where we saw the author speak about many Old Testament saints who had trusted God for salvation. We often refer to that as the hall of faith. The author documents several Old Testament heroes like Abraham, Moses, Abel, Enoch, Joseph, Isaac. And chapter 11 finished with these verses. And all those, though commanded through their faith, did not receive what was promised. Since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. All these refers to the Old Testament saints presented in chapter 11. Apart from us, they should not be made perfect, indicating that together with us. In other words, they're not going to be made perfect without us. We're all going to be made perfect together. We're joined together for eternity in the new heaven and the new earth. And then the author moves into chapter 12, verse 1. And I'll be reading verses 1 and 2 to begin with. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. I can almost guarantee that you've heard this passage taught improperly. Almost guarantee it. This passage does not say what many think it says. Let's see if we can figure out what God actually said here. It begins with therefore, which ties us back to those saints in the in chapter 11, having just taught through so many examples of faith in God, the author shows how shows us now a focus on the Hebrew church in the present time for them there and for our church in our present time. Following uh, the following line in this verse is the one that the majority I think understand improperly. Since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, is so often interpreted that all of those Old Testament saints, all of our uh, New Testament saints that have gone on before us are watching from like grandstands in heaven what we do. They're witnessing what we do. So you better do it right. I mean, who hadn't heard that preached? It preaches good, but I don't think that's what God's saying here. The word witness is the Greek word mortuor own, where we get the English word martyr. 
witnesses a legitimate interpretation of the word, but it's not the only way to understand this word. The word is often used to describe the followers of God who have been active in serving God and many who have been killed for serving him. I don't think that we should interpret this word to mean that the Old Testament saints are now actively sitting there watching us. I don't know how, I, I, I don't, first of all, I don't know the mechanics of that. You know, how, how do they see? Does, does God like have cameras that we don't know about? Or are they blessed with uh, super sight that they can see from wherever heaven is? How, how exactly does that work? Are they riding the clouds? Well, it's a bumpy ride today, so probably not. So exactly how, how would they be watching us? Does he have a great big screen? You know, that puts the Dallas Cowboys jumbotron to, to shame? I don't know. I don't think so. Because I don't think that's what this is saying. There's no indication anywhere else in Scripture that those in heaven are currently watching us or even could watch us. I know we like to think that. Well, so-and-so is watching down on me. Like they can do anything? They're not God. They don't become gods when they get to heaven. I suspect that many find it comforting to know that those who have gone before us are watching out for us. Unfortunately, I can't find support of that in any other passage in Scripture. This is one ambiguous passage. Is it enough for, this, for that one ambiguous passage to say, here's a doctrine that we can, can teach that they're watching us? I think a better way to interpret this verse is this way. Since we are preceded by such a large group of people who followed God, and some of them were even killed for it, that we've been in, totally encompassed by their legacy. That's really, the, I think, the understanding of what he said. We should, because they're there, because they have provided us such a legacy to run into, we should run the race that God has set before us. Not because they're witnessing, not because they'll be frustrated that we don't run it the way they want us to run it, but because they've provided for us such a good legacy to run with. When we view these verses in the context of the entire section of the book of, of Hebrews, it becomes clear that the author presented several examples of faithful servants and then brought them back to the church he was addressing. He intends to have the church respond in the same way the examples did, in faith, in trust, in following. In chapter 11, the examples were faithful uh, in following God, even when they had not yet received all the rewards that they'd been promised. Abraham didn't do what he did because, he, because of the blessings he received. The majority of the promises of Abraham are yet to come. He didn't get to see any of them. The point is that they were not faithful in serving God because of the rewards they got. They were faithful regardless of the rewards. The call is to the church to be faithful in following God just like they were, regardless of the rewards. Not just when things go right and when we feel blessed by God. But even when we're attacked, when we're hurt, we must remain faithful to God. How do we do that? Look at verse 1 again. 
Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings closely, and let us run with endurance the race set before us. We're to eliminate every weight that weighs us down and prevents us from running the best we can. In a few months, the Olympics will begin in Paris. As though the, those athletes get ready to run around the track or, or do their gymnastics routine or shoot or play basketball or whatever they're going to do, they have to practice. They have to get rid of all those things that distract them, that weigh them down. As these athletes get ready to run around the track, let's just, just take some track, track athletes. They take off all their street clothes, their, their heavy shoes, and all the things that slow them down. They put on these sleek outfits that are aerodynamic. The guys riding the bikes, what do they do? They put on helmets that have, that have airfoils on them to direct the wind so they can go as fast as they can, and there's no blockage of the wind. That's what the author is saying here. The church needs to eliminate all those things that prevent us from being obedient to God and completing the mission he's given to us. Then he says we need to run the race with endurance. We need to run in a way to get to the end. In the upcoming Olympics, we'll, we'll see different runners use different strategies. The runner going out for the, for the 26.2 mile marathon starts off differently than the guy running the 440. The guy running the 440, he's right from the beginning. You do that in a marathon, you're, you're dead at two miles. Different strategies for different, different races. The endurance runner has to race a long, long time. And that's what the author is saying here. Get, get used to running the race that God has given you. Do it with endurance. The word endurance carries the sense of having the capacity to continue in difficult circumstances. I've only got one real question for you this morning. How do we obtain the capacity to continue in different, difficult circumstances? How do we do that? Prayer. Prayer, okay. What else? Practice, yes. Yeah. But do we do it by ourselves? No, we don't do it by ourselves. The moment you're saved, you're indwelled by the Holy Spirit who provides you the abilities and capacities to follow Jesus. The Apostle Paul used the words filled by the Holy Spirit. That doesn't mean we get more of the Holy Spirit. It means we utilize more of the Holy Spirit. Fill means we use more of what God has already given us. Verse 2 provides us an, an, excuse me, an example of, of how to do that. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of of God. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. That's how you that's how you endure. Founder is the Greek word archagon, which has a root sense of primacy. In that sense, he's the first of an order. Also in the word is the sense of royalty. He's the 
He's the head royal, the king. The word indicates that Jesus is the uncaused, first cause of the world, the royal head of the universe, the author of our faith, and the one who led to our ability to even have faith. That's all wrapped up in that one word, archagon. Not only is Jesus the founder and author, but he's also the perfecter of our faith. The word perfecter is the Greek word uh, teleotwain, which is often translated as completer or perfecter. The Apostle Paul says in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, and I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. That's what the author of the Hebrew, book of Hebrews says. He's the perfecter of it. He's the one that brings you to the end of it, that lets you run the race with endurance to the end. What is the good work Jesus is doing in, in us? It's the work of justification. It's the work of sanctification. And it's the work of glorification. Just like the Old Testament saints had not experienced all that was promised to them, we have not yet experienced it all either. We've been justified by God, but the benefits of justification are not yet experienced. Glorification has not yet been experienced. Just like the Old Testament saints, we need to trust God for what he has promised and run the race that he's given us to run. We can run the race because of our faith in him to do what he has told us he's going to do. Now go back to verse 2 again. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus endured the cross. I don't think the author is speaking of only the physical cross. Like we saw in Sunday school, it's much bigger than that. And in some ways, it's eternal. It's a mark that Jesus bears now for eternity. Kenosis plays a part of this. Jesus, had, Jesus bore that, that physical pain, that spiritual pain, that relationship pain as this fracture occurred in the Godhead. I don't understand that fracture. I don't know how it works. But just as, as Dr. Tack had talked about, you can't explain what happened between the Father and the Son, but it happened. It was real, and it has eternal ramifications. Jesus endured the pain of the cross. He endured the shame of being labeled a, a criminal, being labeled a heretic and a deceiver, all to provide us with salvation. Jesus was victorious over all the pain and even death itself and now sits at the Father's right hand in heaven's throne room. When you go through the door into the throne room, there will be Jesus at the right hand of the Father. He can get us to the end of the race. He can get us to him for eternity. Verse 3, Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may grow weary, may not grow weary or faint-hearted. As we can consider the struggles that, that we've endured or we're enduring, we have to keep in mind what Jesus went through for us to obtain salvation. Just as he taught about the examples in chapter 11, he's now setting Jesus as an example for us to follow. Keeping our focus on Jesus can prevent a growing weary and 
prevent us from growing weary and faint-hearted. Faint-hearted is being discouraged. The author does not want the, the Hebrew church to be discouraged because they're facing persecution and difficult times. The same is true for us. Don't be discouraged because of difficult times. Jesus told us that those things would come. He promised us they would come. But when we remain focused on Jesus, who did so much and is now seated at the, at the right hand of the seat of power, we can have the confidence to endure to the end of the race. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Up to this point, the Hebrews had not yet suffered so much that they were being martyred. Sure, they'd already experienced some real persecution, but the one he is writing to, the church that he's writing to, had not yet been through the killing of their own. If this book was written to the church in Jerusalem, then this was written early, because James from Jerusalem is killed relatively early. James was killed as the Apostle Paul was still working to execute the church and stood by holding their garments. Jesus endured it all, all the way to the cross and the grave. In comparison, we have not endured that much. All that the church endured, all that Jesus endured, we haven't endured hardly anything. You know, we're wimps, really. And you have forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. The author moves into a, into a new section here, a new thought, by asking the rhetorical question, have you all forgotten that you've been exhorted as sons? God calls you his sons, his daughters. He calls you his beloved children. Have you forgotten that? And he quotes from Proverbs chapter 3, verses 11 and 12. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves him whom he loves and as a father, the son in whom he delights. We should never take lightly the discipline and rebuke that we receive from God. God's discipline of us is a demonstration that, his, that he loves us, that he has love for us. That sounds a little counterintuitive, really. But when you think about it, it makes sense. God loves us and disciplines us so that we remain focused on him and his plan. We see this in the modern family as well. Letting a kid get away with murder... Letting a kid get with any, away with anything could ultimately lead to the kid getting away with murder, right? Discipline is something that loving parents do. Is it painful? Yeah. Is it difficult? Yeah. But it, it prepares the kid to live in a society. It demonstrates our love because we discipline our kids. That's what God is doing as well. We're his sons, and as sons... We're his children as, as his children. He loves us and he disciplines us. Look at what the author says next in verse 8. If you are left without discipline in which you have all participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. I admit 
This is a difficult verse to interpret. But in context, we're being told that if we're not being disciplined by God, it's not because we don't deserve it, because you do, but it's because we're not true children of God. Look at what the author says. If we were left without discipline, in which we've all participated in, so he's writing to the, church, to the Hebrew church, and he's saying, listen, we've all been disciplined by God. So that means he's writing to believers. And so it's kind of a rhetorical question, right? If you're left without discipline in which, you have, in which we've all participated, then you're not legitimate children of God. Since he's saying we've all participated in it, he's, he's recognizing the church as legitimate sons of God. The author is emphasizing that God disciplines his kids, and we are his kids. So he's, he's going to discipline. Not everyone, but he's going to discipline the church. Verse 9, besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respect them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? This is where it can get a little dicey for some who don't respect their fathers, who didn't have good homes and so forth. I get that. But by and large, most kids that are disciplined by their parents when they grow older respect their parents for what they did for them. We've been disciplined by our Heavenly Father. And as a result of that proper discipline, we respect our Father. <coughs> We've been disciplined by our earthly father. And because of that, we have respect for our earthly father. It's true. Respect is what is normally coming from proper discipline. Verse 10. For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he, God, disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. Our parents did the best they could to train us and to build us into adults that we should be. All sorts of different circumstances, different situations, different philosophies, they did the best they could. But God is perfect, knows everything. He does it for our good. Not the best that he could. It's the best that can be because he's perfect. Notice what God disciplines for our good. Notice also that God disciplines for our good. The end result of that discipline is that we may share his holiness. As I was studying this passage, I spent a little time trying to figure out what his holiness was a reference to. I think what the author has done in verse 10 is, is a kind of a play on words. Our parents disciplined us for a short time. In contrast to that, or juxtaposed to that, just because that's a fun word to say, is our sharing in God's holiness. When does that happen? Eternity. Our parents disciplined for a short time, God for eternity. He's making a play on short and long, I think, here. Our, dis our parents disciplined us for a short time, but God is present for eternity. How much more should we appreciate and respect God for his eternal work on our behalf? For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. I love this. 
It hurts when you get disciplined. It's certainly not pleasant. But discipline from God eventually results in our being with him for eternity. Chapter 12 begins with a reference to running the race that's set before us. The runners who are going to be running in Paris in a few months for the 2024 Olympics had to have discipline for years building up to that. To, to the point where they were qualified to run in the Olympics. There was a great deal of pain in preparing to run those races. But oh, the satisfaction when they mount the podium and they put a gold medal around the neck. I guarantee that every winner of the race in the Olympics spent time training and being disciplined. There are no walk-on athletes who have had no training and no discipline. God disciplines us throughout our lives. The end result of that discipline is an eternity of peace, fellowship, and worship of God. The author of the book Hebrews reminds us that the church that we ha- reminds the church that we have faith in Jesus, who was the founder and perfecter of our faith. That means that Jesus created for us to ha- the ability for us to have faith. He is the one who will bring to an end result that faith, eternity. He started it, and he's going to finish it. It's almost like it's the Alpha and the Omega that we heard about earlier. Along the way, we're disciplined by God to, be, to keep us narrow, focused. To keep us focused on Him and what He wants us to do, where He wants us to go. But the result is, we'll stand on the podium and get the gold medal for eternity. The author encourages the church not to grow weary in our struggle against our own sin and the sin of the world. Jesus is a great example of how we're to endure in this world. Next week, Lord willing, we'll see, another, we'll see the author build on this encouragement by issuing a call to action. So this week, be encouraged when, when God disciplines you, when he smacks you, because he will. He's doing that for your own good, for your own effectiveness in your service of him. He's doing that so that you get the gold medal at the end of the race. Father, thank you for the blessings you give us. We, follow, we trust you, we love you, we follow you. We're, we want to be obedient to you in everything that you tell us to do. Thank you for loving us, Jesus. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for watching or listening to this teaching on demand from Friendship Grace Brethren Church. Please consider sending us an email at info at friendshipgracebrethren.com to let us know how this teaching may have helped you. Please also consider joining us in person at Friendship Grace Brethren Church, located at 10251 Metro Parkway, Suite 116, Fort Myers, Florida, just south of the intersection of Metro and Colonial Boulevard. Sunday school begins at 9 and worship service at 10 a.m. We look forward to seeing you in person at Friendship Grace Brethren Church.